one of the big takeaways here is that participants who reported high levels of stress during the previous five years were 150 to 200% more likely to develop type 2 diabetes. In other words, twice as likely to develop type 2 diabetes if they said they had high levels of stress sometime during the previous five years. Hi, and welcome to the Solving Type 2 Diabetes podcast. I'm Tom, and I'll be your host as I share what I'm doing in my daily life to solve my type 2 diabetes. Listen in as I share the food, movement, and tools that I'm using each day. This podcast is intended for entertainment purposes only. For a full transcript or to follow the Solving Type 2 Diabetes podcast on social media, please head over to SolvingType2Diabetes.com for all those links and more. Now, on to the show. I hope you've had a great week this week. I know for me, it's been a little bit of traveling and it's been a fun week. I had a few relaxing days, but first part of the week, I finished up my trip to Arkansas, Northwest Arkansas, near Bentonville. And if you listened to last week, you'll know that I was out there visiting my oldest daughter and two grandkids, and it was a fun time. I try and get out there every few months, and it is always fun seeing everybody, and it's very enjoyable for me. I got in a few good walks, some walks with the kiddos and some walks on my own. I also ended up doing a yoga session back in the hotel, I think just about every night. I was out there for five nights, and so I closed my rings all those days out there, which was great. We tried some new recipes, new recipes for them. They're some of my favorites, but we made a couple of really good dinners out there. We had the Mississippi pot roast, and we had the white chicken chili, and uh, my oldest daughter made some great salmon fillets. She made them in her air fryer, and it was just delicious, so... Good times, good visiting, good eating, good movement. I really enjoyed myself out there in Arkansas. And then I flew home, had a few days at home, three days actually, and uh, I did manage to get out on the Lebanon Valley Rails to Trails, the rail trail out there. I get on it near Colebrook, if you're familiar with central Pennsylvania. And one day I walked south, another day I walked north, south, and just switched it up a little bit. They were doing some uh, tree work out there and they're really keeping the trail looking nice. It's an all-volunteer trail maintenance crew on the Lebanon Valley Rail Trail, and I certainly do appreciate all of their work. But now I'm back on Enchantment of the Seas with my wife. I'm not in a little interior cabin this cruise. My wife likes a bathtub, and only the suites have bathtubs. So we are in a junior suite. It's, if you will, I'll use air quotes here, but it's the cheapest suite that they have. And it's a nice balcony. It's a little bit larger room than a regular balcony. And it does have the full bath, which she really enjoys. So I'm here for another 12-nighter with my wife. And we are going down to the Southern Caribbean. So both today's episode and also next week's episode, I'll be recording on board. And this first day or so, it's been a little bumpy. The same thing happened during my cruise last month, and it seems like going through the North Atlantic until we get down past the Carolinas 
and really start going into the Caribbean a little bit. It is bumpy here during the wintertime in the North Atlantic. We have, I don't know, I'm going to guess maybe 10 foot, 12 foot seas. It is very windy, about 35 knots of wind. And that's without the movement adding in of the ship. That is simply the uh, wind itself. And also, it's pouring down raining. So it's an indoor day for sure. But the captain says that by lunchtime tomorrow, which will be our second full day at sea, it will be calming down quite a bit. And by then, we should be down in the Georgia, Florida latitude. So we'll be heading three days at sea until we get to the Southern Caribbean. And then we have about five islands to stop at. I'm sure I'll talk about those next episode. And 12 nights in all. So it should be really great. For my numbers this week, I was able to close my rings seven out of seven days. And, you know, whether I close them five, six, seven days, that's all the same to me. I try not to be perfect, just consistent. So this week was seven out of seven, and I'll take that. I appreciate the chance to be able to get that movement in and get my standing in and burn my calories and do my exercise. So that's great. For workouts this week, as usual, it has been primarily walking, although I did get a chance to throw in yoga and a couple of strength sessions on my Apple Fitness Plus that I like to use. I can use that almost anywhere. I just Sometimes if I'm home, I'll throw it to the TV. Otherwise, I just use my watch and my phone and get in my Apple Fitness Plus workouts. No plug for them. I have no sponsors. <laughs> I'm just mentioning it because I use it. For my seven-day average glucose, it has been really nice. I've averaged 85 over the last seven days. That's 24-7 as measured by my continuous glucose monitor that I wear. And that seven-day average of 85, if that were maintained, that would be an A1C of 4.6. That is down in what they call the optimal range. You might not know if you haven't listened to the first few episodes from this past year, but my A1C was routinely clocking in around 11. I think once I even had an A1C reading of 14, that's dangerously high. But now with what I'm doing, it is down in the optimal level, well down below even pre-diabetes. So I'm happy with that. When I was home, I did step on the scale. My body fat percentage was down a hair, down to 24.0%. And if you remember, you know my goal is to get down to at least 17%. So no more than 17%. Body fat is where I'd like to be. Where that eventually settles out at, I don't know, 17, 16, 15, I don't know. But certainly, I know I still need to lose body fat if it's above 17, and right now it's 24. That also has gone down a lot. Just a couple years ago, I measured that at 36%. So it's slowly but steadily, a few tenths of a percent per week, and I will take that happily. My macros for the week. My seven-day macro count, and I use the app MyFitnessPal to measure that. But the seven-day macro reading for me, I've averaged 51.51 grams of carbs each day, and I've managed to average 127 grams of protein each day. Now, I like to keep my protein up on the high side. That might be more protein than you need to get in. But I, one of the things I really am concerned about is... I don't want to lose any muscle mass. 
And as I'm losing weight, losing fat, some of what I lose is muscle mass. So I'm trying to dramatically limit the amount of muscle mass I lose. And also, if I can avoid losing any, that's where I really want to go. Eventually, I think when I'm finished with this body fat loss phase, I will increase my strength training even more and attempt to maybe gain a couple of pounds of muscle mass. Now, it's much easier to lose fat than it is to gain muscle, for me anyway. I'm turning 60 this year, and maybe if you're in your 20s or even 30s, gaining muscle would be much easier. And it is a byproduct of how much strength training you actually do. So I'm not saying it's impossible for someone who's older, but you know, you have to work at it. You have to work at it. So that is something that I'm very mindful of, and that is one reason I keep my protein up where it is. For my Manjaro update, I think this is a popular piece of the podcast now. Folks seem to be very interested in Manjaro, and I can certainly understand why. So this week, I took my first injection at the 7.5 milligram dose. And the way it typically works is you get your body used to it. The first four weeks, at least, are at the 2.5 milligram dose. Then at least the next four weeks are at the 5 milligram dose. So I've completed that completed eight full weeks. And so now, just a couple days ago, I took my first dose at the 7.5 milligram level. And I have a feeling, at least for now anyway, I think I'm going to cap out maybe at 10 milligrams. You can go higher. You can go to 12.5. You can go to 15. Honestly, my results are so great now. I don't think, I mean, I could stay at 7.5, I guess, but I've seen the studies and the really dramatic, great results start seems to me like around the 10 milligram dose. So once I get there, I'm going to have to have a very good reason to go any higher. And I'll be there in about three weeks. So I am having very good A1C blood glucose control. Even if I have, let's say last night, for example, I had a dinner roll with my dinner. Good dinner last night. I had New York strip steak, some broccoli and carrots, but I did have a dinner roll with that. And I just saw the slightest little blip of blood sugar with my CGM, but it was right back down then. An hour or so later, right back down into the 80s. Even with some carbs that I would call refined carbohydrates with the dinner roll, it is very good A1C control. Now, for those of you who are interested in this, my weight, and I call this a side effect because it's not my primary goal, my, my weight is down 12 pounds in the past eight weeks. So, you know, a pound and a half a week, and quite frankly, I might only have at most 15, maybe 20 pounds more body fat I'm trying to lose. So it's not going to go down too much further. But for the last eight weeks, it is down 12 pounds. And I really do attribute that to the Manjaro because it certainly almost eliminates my hunger. Absolutely reduces it dramatically. And I would say the first, I don't know, four, five days after each injection, it almost completely eliminates my hunger, I could take or leave eating, but I know I have to eat. I want to stay healthy. I don't want to, I'm not doing this for the weight loss. So I just want to eat properly and use this as a very helpful tool. Now, I did interestingly enough get an alert today from the Apple Health app. So I looked at that and I thought, oh, why is Apple Health alerting me? And it said that there has been a change in my average blood glucose readings. I knew that, but this alert really brought it dramatically right in front of my eyes. 
for the 19 weeks prior to the last six weeks, in other words, it looked at half a year, it looked at the last six months. So for 19 weeks, my blood sugar had averaged 131. Now, again, I've been wearing the CGM this whole time, so that's an average 24-7 reading, 131. That's just into the pre-diabetes range. Still, well below where my doctor ever expected my blood sugar to get back down to. But interestingly enough, for the past six weeks, I've averaged 83 for a 24-7 glucose reading. So over the course of six months, for the first 19 weeks, 131. For the past six weeks, 83. Now what's changed? Really the only thing that's changed is the Manjaro and the fact that it is dramatically reducing my appetite. I don't binge eat. I don't go for the cookies and treats and stuff like that anymore. And I'm also eating less. So all of that together, along with the things it does for insulin and the things it does for your body chemistry and helping with your liver and whatnot, I went from a 19-week average of 131 down to a six-week average of 83. So this started just about a week after I started the Manjaro. So it's amazing, really good. For my challenge and win this week, I had reported on previous cruises of not being able to get in enough protein. So I was a little proactive for this cruise. And I finally brought along protein shakes and some of my Quest protein bars. So these are, I'm going to call compact and dense sources of protein. The shakes have 30 grams of protein, a few grams of fat, a couple of grams of carbs. The Quest protein bars have about 21 grams of protein just a couple grams of carbs, a couple grams of fat. So they're both really dense protein sources. And even when you eat a ground hamburger or steak or whatever, bacon or eggs, that's still 50% fat, 50% protein. So, you know, the calories add up when you're trying to get your protein in that way. And I found that on the cruise ship, I just simply was not able to eat enough meat and eggs and things like that to get enough protein. So I have supplemented now and yesterday was my first full day on board, but my protein was spot on, and I did have a protein shake. So I brought enough so I can have a protein shake each day, and if I want, I could also have a protein bar. So I think my protein will be just fine for this cruise, so I'm going to call that a win. All right, let's take a look at the news. This first article is entitled, How Long You Need to Walk After Meals? to stabilize your blood sugar. Now, we had talked about walking after meals before, and we talked about the fact that walking immediately after food can help eliminate a blood sugar spike. Now, it does not keep the sugar from going into your bloodstream and eventually getting into your system, but it does eliminate or reduce, let's say, that blood sugar spike. So I think before we talked about, you know what, it's got to be at least five or 10 minutes but this article, and of course the link to all these articles will be in the show notes that you can find over at the website, solvingtype2diabetes.com, or on your podcast player, you should be able to see the show notes right there as well, and they're all clickable links. But this article is recommending about 30 minutes after a large meal, just at a moderate pace, doesn't have to be sprinting, it should be probably a little bit more than strolling, but... It's talking about how 30 minutes maybe after your largest meal of the day 
is enough to really eliminate that spike. Now, your blood sugar will normally and naturally still rise, but it might not have a spike straight up and tank, get low blood sugar, which some people get after a spike. Interesting article. Check that out. How long you need to walk after meals to stabilize your blood sugar. The next article has a famous actor in it. You might know him from Blackish or some of the other shows he's been on. But he, his name is Anthony Anderson, and he has been diagnosed now with type 2 diabetes for about 20 years. And his message here that he has in this article is that type 2 diabetes is not a death sentence. It's, I'm going to say, a life sentence, but because you can't get rid of it, right? Once you have type, once you've damaged your system to the point of having type 2 diabetes, you can always go back to those high blood sugar readings if you don't handle your medications and your movement and your food properly. But his message here is that type 2 diabetes is absolutely, if you're effective in what you do, it's absolutely something you can live with. Now, he says he has to pay attention to it. He has to deal with it every day, make decisions every day that's going to help him with his diabetes. But what he was most concerned about was heart disease. And we know that high blood sugar levels can damage your blood vessels, your arteries, your heart muscle itself, the nerves of your heart that can all be damaged by high blood sugars over time. So he's concerned about that. And that's why he wanted to control his type 2 diabetes. Now he does use medication and food and movement like we do here. And he's saying that he is able to control it and live with it successfully. So congratulations to him. So famous people, not just us, but famous people also can get type 2 diabetes. So that's a fun little article. It's maybe inspiring or interesting to see what he does. So check that one out. The next article here that I'd like to share with you is called Artificial Sweeteners and Type 2 Diabetes. Now, this could very well be one of the most controversial subjects there are with regards to type 2 diabetes or just general health, artificial sweeteners. Now, let me say that I use what they call artificial sweeteners. The one I use the most is the yellow packets, and that is the Splenda. I believe it's the Splenda. Anyway, it's the yellow packets for sure. I always go for the yellow packets. And that is a sucralose. So that's my choice. Now, you might not want to use artificial sweeteners, and that's fine. You certainly don't have to. I like it in my coffee. When I have diet soda, I pick the ones that have the Splenda. I don't seem to have, at least from what I can tell, I don't seem to have any adverse side effects. So I use it not abundantly, a few servings a day, and pretty much every day, I would say, certainly every morning in my coffee. Now, the article here tries to talk about the effect of artificial sweeteners on insulin, the effect of artificial sweeteners on glucose control, and things like that. And it's an interesting little article here. It links to a few studies. But having read this article, what I'm coming away with is that for every study that you see where it says an artificial sweetener is 
bad for you, you're bad for your insulin levels, bad for your blood sugar control. There's just as many studies that say they have no effect whatsoever. So, I don't know, it almost can go either way. Most of the studies are undetermined. In other words, they really can't see any statistical difference between an artificial sweetener or not. Now, what is very clear is that sugar in processed foods, table sugar, even the quote-unquote healthy sweeteners like agave, which is mostly fructose, which goes directly to your liver, those do have an adverse effect on your insulin and your blood sugar controls. So if anything, if you want to stay away from anything, make sure you're staying away from excess processed foods, which contain a lot of sugars, adding table sugar, adding things with high fructose corn syrup, all those things, those are what absolutely, without a doubt, adversely affect people, especially when they're taken in excess, who have type 2 diabetes. So for me, and I can't tell you what to do because I'm not a doctor, not a nutritionist, not a dietitian, but for me, I know to stay away from those real sugars. And those worry me much, much more than my few packets of Splenda do each day. All of these artificial sweeteners in this article that they list have been approved and considered safe by the FDA, and none of them have FDA precautions or limitations. I think if you were to eat buckets and buckets, anything is going to be bad for you, even an artificial sweetener. But within reason, a few servings a day, I personally don't worry about them at all. But check out and you can figure out what you think about those. This final one here, and this is something we did last week, and I want to do it again. It's type 2 diabetes friendly soups and stews. So I think, you know, for most of us, it's still wintertime, and it's still cold. So this last article here links to eight different recipes that I thought you might enjoy. I'm just going to read the names of the recipes here, and then you can check out the article and make some of these up. And if you do make some up, please let me know. Please send me a note. You can go over to the website, click on feedback, or you can send me an email directly, tom at solvingtype2diabetes.com. But anyway, these recipes are spiced turkey chili with spaghetti squash, gingery chicken soup with zucchini noodles, cauliflower soup with hazelnuts and bacon, three-ingredient tomato soup, Instant Pot Braised Lamb with White Beans and Spinach Black Bean Soup with Roasted Poblano Chilies And finally, Cream of Asparagus Soup So I can tell you here in this article, all these pictures look good and they are all low-calorie, they're all vegetable-intense and they look very yummy. None of them have any added sugar. So, enjoy those soups and that's the news for today. Our main topic today, and this was a listener question that was sent in a few weeks ago, and the listener wanted to know about what impact stress has on type 2 diabetes. So I am linking to a research article here. It's entitled, Does Emotional Stress Cause Type 2 Diabetes Mellitus? a review from the European Depression in Diabetes Research Consortium. You can read the entire study. It is very long. I'm going to quote a few little passages here. 
And I think we'll see that the answer to does stress impact type 2 diabetes, I think the answer is yes. So let's look at this article. The uh, research study here, first of all, quotes the World Health Organization who said in 2009, more than 220 million people had type 2 diabetes. That is expected to rise to 366 million by 2030, just a few years from now. So that, by the way, is increasing faster than the world population rate is increasing. So the percentage of people is going up who have type 2 diabetes. Now, this is primarily recorded here, these studies from self-reported levels of stress. One of the big takeaways here is that participants who reported high levels of stress during the previous five years were 150 to 200 percent more likely to develop type 2 diabetes. In other words, twice as likely to develop type 2 diabetes if they said they had high levels of stress sometime during the previous five years. So what is stress? Stress is defined as the nonspecific response of the body to any demand. So usually it comes in three stages, and you might be familiar with these. The alarm phase, which is fight or flight. Then the resistance phase. In other words, you build up a resistance to the stress. And then finally, the exhaustion phase. And that can be entered into when the stress is significantly long. And that is the exhaustion phase is also sometimes called the general adaptation syndrome. And that's when your body starts to shift its set point, its homeostatic set point through change. And you can see a change in blood pressure, an increase. You can have a change in kidney function. It's like a domino effect. Once your body starts to adjust to this stress, many things can change. And something that often changes are behavioral symptoms of stress. And it goes on here to say that can be eating too much, not eating enough, sleeping too much or not enough, withdrawing socially, procrastination or neglect of responsibilities. Here's something, increased alcohol, nicotine, or drug consumption. These are all things that you do in reaction to stress. And that those changes, those behavioral changes, can start to result in body system dysfunction or shutdown. Now, that can come on as like metabolic syndrome, increased fat, increased cholesterol, increased blood pressure, increased blood sugars. Those can all result from chronic emotional stress. And once you start to change these set points, once your body tries to start dealing with this excess stress, that's when things can go bad very quickly. Eating too much, not getting out outside, not getting out socially, just vegetating at home. Those are all things that can certainly affect our weight, that can affect our body fat, our blood sugar. Those are the things that all can cause type 2 diabetes. So what this study shows here really dramatically, and it I'm just giving you the highlights. This is a very long article. And it highlights very, very many studies. It's very interesting. If you want to read the medical research itself, it's all linked here. And I'll link to this as well in the show notes. But it clearly shows how stress can go to behavioral change, changes in what you do. 
And then those behavioral changes can lead to body system changes. If you start eating a whole lot because you're stressed, you can gain weight. Your blood sugar could become a problem. And if then that all leads to type 2 diabetes. So there is a fairly clear indication here. And they don't come right out and say that stress causes type 2 diabetes. But it does seem to start off a chain of events and changes to your body systems and your behaviors that can certainly lead to type 2 diabetes. So I don't think it's a coincidence that these folks who have reported these high-level and long-term stress events have a twice the chance of then developing type 2 diabetes as do people who do not report these stress events. If you can nip this off in the bud, if you can better control your stress levels and better alleviate those situations that cause you stress or find ways, maybe mindfulness, meditation, exercise that helps alleviate some of these stress changes, then you might have a better chance of avoiding the type 2 diabetes, or if you have it, of turning that around. So for your questions for this week, we did not get any questions in. It's funny, isn't it, how I say we when it's really me and I, but I'm using the, I guess, the royal we, if you will. Anyway, we did not get any questions in this week, but if you would like to send in a question, let me know if you tried one of those recipes or give me any other type of feedback. There's two ways to do it. You can go to the website, solvingtype2diabetes.com. You can click on feedback and just type in there whatever you'd like, or you can just send me an email directly, tom at solvingtype2diabetes.com, and I'll be happy to answer your question, and if it's okay with you, I'll share that on the episode. So what's next? What are we doing next week? What are we talking about? Something that I've been thinking about here for a little while now is do I really need to be wearing a continuous glucose monitor? Now, it is a tool that I rely on. I've been wearing one now for about 20, 21 months. But is this something really that I need to wear? Because they're not cheap. Maybe are there other alternatives? So let's talk about that next week on the next episode. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Solving Type 2 Diabetes podcast. I hope you found it valuable. Please follow and leave a five-star review as it helps other people find the podcast. By subscribing, you ensure you won't miss the next episode. You can always get a full transcript of the episode at SolvingType2Diabetes.com. There, you will also find the links to leave feedback and links to follow on social media. I'm very interested in hearing from you with comments and suggestions. Thanks very much for listening. Please remember that everything I share is just from my own personal experience and should not be taken as medical or health advice. Please consult your own medical professionals. This podcast is intended for entertainment purposes only.